about today. Um, and this is research which is really in the beginning and I would like to tell you a little bit about the motivation on why I'm writing this paper. So <clears throat> what, what you have basically now, which is ever more developed, is law and economics of international law, which is close to, depends how you do it, to institutionalism and international relations or even realism, which of course enters theories of international law. Then you have behavioral law and economics, which is, or you can call it basically psychology and the law, because this is where the, the, the research originates. That's widely done and applied in national law now. Um, if you think about regulation, actually the UK is at the forefront of using um, behavioral insights for regulation. It doesn't matter whether that's energy regulation, um, all sorts of consumer regulation. So you might know, have heard about the nudge unit in London um, selling its services also to other governments. So here it's really widely used. And then there is somewhat dis disconnected, um, and not that many people finally know about it, political psychology and international relations. So they use psychology in order to understand why, for example, Kennedy reacted this way in the Bay of Pigs, or you, know, you can imagine of how Putin plays with certain psychological effects, um, with the annexation of Crimea, things like that would be interested, uh, would, be, would be the research they are looking at. Now, um, what you see here is a big, or in the original slide it was black, a black hole, here it's a red hole. Um, the, somehow Oxford is changing the colors. Um, so what's missing here is basically the international dimension when we look at that, right? Um, here the law is completely missing, actually. Um, they look at the decision makers from a psychological point of view, but funnily international law doesn't play a role, and as international lawyers we somehow don't like that because we think that international law plays a role in the decision making. Um, and here um, they use rational choice as a behavioral theory, and so the behavioral or the psychology is missing. And what, what, what I try to do is really to paint or try to understand international law from a behavioral perspective. And you can call it behavioral law and economics, or you can call it um, psychology or behavioral, it depends on whom you talk to, okay? I use those terms interchangeably. Um, and what I would like to do now here is basically to zoom in on global public goods and global commons. Um, and I'm going to explain in a second what those are. Um, global public goods and commons clearly are the most pressing issues facing the world, collect the, the, the world. So, so they all need, we can't solve them as one state individually. We do need collective action um, of states. So climate change, infectious diseases, antibiotic resistance, great financial crises, um, overfishing, a classical commons problem, um, terrorism fighting, and all those issues need international corporations. And the predominant social science approach analyzing those problems is basically rational choice, as I said before. They use so-called strategic interaction models as modeled in game theory. Game theory um, in international relations, that would be institutionalism, realism, international law, and economics, as I said. Okay? But they use rational choice game theory. Now, the issue is that the predictions on the local level, which rational choice gives, gives are, and that we know from the field, are actually too pessimistic. So people are better than rational. Okay? Um, 
And what Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom, is a political scientist turned economic Nobel Prize winner, um, and she said in her um, American, in the presidential address to the American Political Science Foundation in 98, uh, we have not yet developed a behavioral theory of collective action based on models of the individual consistent with empirical evidence about how individuals make decisions in social dilemma situations. Um, and this basically amounts to research gap we have, right? We have on the one hand behavioral economics and public good games as they are played in, um, in the lab, um, which tells us how individuals react to those kind of social dilemma situations. And on the other hand, we have the international law which face exactly those social dilemma um, 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 situations in global public goods and commons, and we haven't brought those things together. And this is what I try to do in this talk. Now, when I started writing this paper, I thought like, okay, I have a part to explain what we know, and then I look at legal design and make suggestions on how to design international law in a better way. Um, when, when we think about it. And then suddenly I realized, wow, so many elements of what the experiments tell us we should have in international legal design are actually already there. It's just that they are never really, there's never really a discussion in international, at least in, in game theory. Um, they would not take account of those factors or just discard them. But let me, let me come to that in more detail. So as I said, like this is part of a, bigger research program, um, and uh, what I have done, and that is substantive law, although like kind of mapping the field, um, is an article in the Harvard International Law Journal, Behavioral International Law and Economics in 2014. We did some experiments with international arbitrators, uh, which is forthcoming um, in Emory Law, law Journal um, with collaborators. Um, then I have a working paper on how proportionality, the way we conduct proportionality analysis frames uh, the decision maker and might lead to different outcomes. And this paper, which I'm presenting to you, which I've submitted to a journal and I'm still waiting for the answer. It was somehow partially commissioned, but I'm still waiting for the answer with that. So of course, subject to review. Then, um, uh, as Talita has mentioned, I have this book project um, with Toma Brody from Hebrew University, um, who has also written on that. Um, and we decided to join forces. And we will also have a conference um, in January 2018 in Jerusalem on the psychology of international law. And there I'm focusing more on the, basically the international legal theory and what we can draw from behavioral economics um, or psychology to, um, for international legal theory. Remember that Hart wrote that his concept of law is a, an essay in descriptive sociology. So what I'm trying to do is to write an essay in descriptive psychology um, and to see what, what that tells us about um, legal theory more generally, but especially also international legal, legal theory. So I, when I came here, assumed that you're not that familiar with the approaches, so I want to, wanted to give you a very short overview. Um, and of course, the papers, if, if you want the paper, I'm happy to send it to you. You just need to send an email to me so you have things in more detail. Um, so what's the rational choice approach? Um, rational choice generally basically says that actors pursue 
Their self-regarding preferences, behavior is rational if it's goal-orientated and consistent across time and different choice situations. That's a rather formal definition of, of, um, of rationality, which needs to be, yeah, I mean, you know, you have, you have to have consistency, um, um, time invariance and stuff, stuff like that, which is a minimal um, uh, definition. But when we use it in international relations, we somehow fill this concept of rationality with certain preferences. We, first of all, what we do is, like international lawyers tend to, we take the state as a black box, like right? a unitary state. So the state acts, boom. it's of course not the state acting, it's somebody else who's acting and we attribute it. We don't look at internal processes, right? And we assume certain preferences of states, for example, economic or military power, if you are more an institutionalist, you might think about soft power. Um, but what you can do with rational choices, of course, like a two-level game, like Putnam has said it, right? So you use internal political economy um, in order to understand how states react on the international plane. So if we explain trade policy of countries, we usually have the explanation we have is an internal battle between different interests of importers, exporters, consumers, and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, you can do the same thing with environmental law, uh, which hasn't been done um, as extensively, if at all. But so now, usually when we analyze collective action constellations, we use game theory, strategic interaction to explain treaty design and compliance. For example, why um, with the so-called prisoner's dilemma game. Have you heard about that? I would like to spare the explanation because that spares me time. Who wants me to explain it? It's fine if I need to explain it. I don't need to explain. Okay, great. Um, so let me quickly come to the type of goods. Um, and that's defined via the consumption of how we consume those goods. And why am I putting this? Because this kind of um, consumption pattern has an incentive on how we produce those goods. And that's going to become clear in a sec. Um, so you have two criteria on how to determine what type of good we are talking about. We have excludable goods and non-excludable goods and rival goods or non-rival goods. Okay? So a, pr a private good is excludable and rival. You have a property right on it. right? So the, cl the, the classical textbook example is the cake. If I eat the cake, you can't have it. And I'm saying I can exclude you from my cake, right? It's my property. So, um, or the um, exclusive economic zone, for example. The opposite would be a public good. So this is non-excludable and non-rival. Um, for example, lighthouses, the climate, terrorism fighting, which basically means, and this is where the problems come up, that um, if everybody, why should I pay for a good? Why should I contribute to the good? if everybody else can use it, right? Um, the, and this is where the so-called free rider problem comes in. So if there's the traditional rational choice approach would say, well, if we do not force people to contribute to the good, then the good will not be provided because there's no incentive, right? I can free ride on the other ones. This is actually one reason why we have taxes which are enforced, <laughs> paying taxes is enforced, but then people pay more taxes than would be expected. But anyway, um, then we have so-called commons, um, and those would be fisheries, 
uh, wild game, water, pastures. Um, and here you can already see the problems that on the international level with, with fisheries, one of the big problems, depletion of the oceans. Um, and water is another issue, but then you have to be very intricate to see what exactly, I mean, water can also be a private good once it's out of, what, one, you have to pay for it once you're home, right? Um, so what's happening here is that it's rival. If I catch the fish, you can't, you can't catch it, right? But it's non-excludable if you talk about fisheries, unless you're in the exclusive economic zone. But, you know, and since fish is migrate, it's very difficult to exclude people from fishing. That leads to the so-called tragedy of the commons, because there's an incentive to overuse. And then the last type of good is the so-called club good. Um, and that is interesting because they are excludable. They're non-rival, but they're excludable. And that sets certain incentives. Um, so you can form a club. The United Nations is a club. Okay? Not everybody can enter. Um, the EU certainly is a club. Not everybody can enter, but people can exit. Um, then you have the Basel Convention. The Basel Convention works via restricting export and imports. Um, so they form a club. Um, only those who, who, who ratify the convention and to adhere to the convention are able to trade waste. Um, same thing with the Kimberley process, which is soft law, or the Financial Action Task Force with um, uh, money laundering and terrorism financing. They work via forming clubs. Unless you adhere to the norms, you are unable to trade. Okay? They shut you out of the market. So you can't trade diamonds if you don't have certified diamonds from certain countries. And that's interesting because the UN sanctions on the conflict diamonds work much worse than the Kimberley process. Even though it's not perfect, it works much better. Okay? So this kind of exclusion of somebody who's not adhering to the norm is pretty forceful. Still, what are the predictions on rational choice for those goods? Um, for the commons, it's classically um, Hardin uh, with a seminal article, The Tragedy of the Commons. It's individually rational to overuse the commons, and they will thus degrade. This is also what we find sometimes, right? Like if you think of about international fisheries. Um, but not always. And the question is, why not? So if they do not degrade, under what conditions... What are the institutional conditions we need to create so that, that they do not degrade, as would be the prediction of a rational choice model? Then we have the logic of collective action by Manko Olson. Collective action is difficult to achieve in public good constellations if you do not have central enforcement. So that's a classical rat choice approach. And the prisoner's dilemma shows how individually rational strategies lead to an undesirable social outcome. So this is really very, very basic, and the prisoner's dilemma game is not the only game states play. Um, indeed, the, a lot of people would say by now that trust games are the games which are mostly played um, by states. Um, so this is the prisoner's dilemma game. I think just for those of you, I'm doing it shortly because now I assume everybody knows, but the important thing is what you need to see is that um, you have two players, and they can either cooperate or they can defect, meaning not cooperate, right? And if you just look at the payouts, what you see is the best, the best outcome for each player is that the other player cooperates, so doesn't fish the fish or doesn't overfish, but I do defect. I overfish, okay? So that's the individually rational strategy. And that would mean <coughs> that he would get... Um, 
he, he would get then um, 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 five points, right? Whereas the other player gets none. Um, so it means that it's always um, rational to go from three to five because my payout is higher, okay? Now, if both do that, they inevitably end up here, where both defect. Non-cooperation is impossible. So it's individually rational to go there, but you end up here, whereas here the payoff would be higher. That's the social dilemma, okay? This is the world we are facing and we need, we need to deal with. Every state would be better off if we could do something to prevent climate change. But it's individually rational to have all the other states taking the, 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 the precautions and you just free ride, right? So um, what would behavioral economics tell us? First of all, um, what, what are behavioral economics more generally? Very superficially, I don't have more time. Um, um, we do have systematic deviations from the rational choice assumptions, okay? And we know that, and may, let me, we know that because those assumptions have been tested extensively in labs and with real players, so either students, but like when we tested, for example, with arbitrators, those were real arbitrators. Um, controlled experiments in the lab, which was started in the 1970s by Kahneman and Tversky, both psychologists. Um, Kahneman also got the Nobel Prize um, in economics. Um, and then now economists, there's a whole branch of experimental economics, so they're, not do, they're, they're doing just that, really. Um, and those, I mean, th those insights are widely used now. Um, not only in economics, also in sociology, also in biology, everywhere, really. So, so the really good ones, they don't publish in economic journals. They publish in nature and science, okay? Um, and what are very superficially issues, you want me to stand here? So basically, there, I, I just wanted to focus on two issues. Um, what they found is that people are boundedly rational and they exhibit biases and heuristics, mainly cognitive errors. Um, one is based on prospect theory, which basically, um, without more explanation, you can always Google it on Wikipedia if you're interested. But the interesting thing is that people are loss-averse, that they, they do more to avoid losses than to have a gain. Um, it, their decisions very much depend on how you frame a decision. Um, to give you the, for me, most um, like telling example, if a doctor tells you that if you do that operation, you have a 30% survival chance, um, then most people take the operation. If you tell the same person they have a 70% death rate, they don't take the operation. Now, Probability-wise, it should be absolutely the same, and it is not. It really varies totally. Um, and you have, so the reference points also, and the start, you have the reference points um, count a lot. So what do people take as a reference point in their frame? And to go back to Crimea, if, the, if Putin puts as a reference point, Crimea is ours. It was purely coincident that you know, it went to Ukraine, it's ours, it's our territory, that's his reference point. And every departure from that would be a loss. So you do a lot in order to regain it, okay? So that really hurts. People don't like those losses. Um, 
And there's a status quo bias. Um, people tend to keep with what they have. Um, default options are very prominent in regulation. Organ donation, whether you have an opt-in system into organs, in um, donating organ, organ, then you have like 10% of the population um, willing to donate. Um, if you have an opt-out system, 90% are willing to donate. Shouldn't make a difference because it's a really important decision, but it does make a difference, okay? More important for me here is the so-called bounded self-interest. So what we know from the games is that equality and fairness concerns are prominent, and that has been widely played in so-called ultimatum and dictator games. Um, so we have much more cooperation and punishment than expected by rational choice. Beware that um, rational choice would not expect much punishment in public good games because punishing somebody else is costly to the punisher. Right? And we have the same thing in international law. It costs you money if you send troops, if you send peacekeeping troops. So it's costly. So you would expect that there's a second order enforcement problem. We play another prisoner's dilemma game. People prefer to free ride on the enforcement measures taken by others, or the sanctioning measures taken by others. So the rational choice expectation would be no punishment. That's not what we find. People do punish, even if it's costly to themselves, because they feel people are behaving unfairly um, or not as they should, so people do punish. And the reaction really depends on the judgment um, of the type of the others, so those people who are not co collaborating. If you're not co cooperating um, because you, are, you don't have the capability, people react totally differently than if they feel you are a mean person and you, you try to cheat on them, okay? Um, so basically, those public good games, so-called public good games, um, have been used to see how social order can be constructed and, they, and upheld. And they do tell us, the question is whether they do tell us something about international law in collective action constellations. Um, they mimic, and that is interesting, the decentralized enforcement in international law, either by states or by non-state actors. Um, and if you think about international legal theory, you know that we still start with Hart, as just I did, right? But I think rightly so, Hathaway and Shapiro have called that the so-called modern state fallacy um, of international legal theory because this is not how international law works. It's seldom that international law punishes or sanctions in a centralized way, which is the modern state conception, right? You have a centralized enforcer. That's not happening. What we usually punish by decentralized peer enforcement, right? Um, or by outcasting um, states. Um, and that is exactly what's happening in those public good games. So we have this kind of nice coincidence of that the public good games somehow mimic international law much better than they mimic national law. Because there I can just call the police, right? This is not what I can do in international law. Now, in any case, rational choice predicts a breakdown of cooperation in multilateral um, public good games. Um, and that is also found in many simple experiments. The question is then, do we need to follow this kind of Hobbesian view of the world? And actually, what the experiments tell us is that there are many factors which can mitigate the public good problem, right? So rational choice is too simple. As I said, people are better than rational. Um, still, what is important is sanctioning. And I want to start with that, because this is also very important to rational choice. Um, but um, 
you know, depends, there are many ways of sanctioning, and international law has invented many ways of sanctioning. Um, so the threat of sanction is important that we know. Sanctioning takes place even if it's costly, because we have those an experiment called spiteful individuals. I'm angry if you do not cooperate, if you don't contribute to the public good. Um, so the second order enforcement problem is mitigated. Then we have a lot of sanctioning via so-called ostracizing in international law and club good formation. This is what I mentioned before. Um, that is very successful in the experiments and it's also very successful in international law. It's just that we mostly don't think about it. Um, so we don't need necessarily sanctions by force. Perceived fairness of the sanction is very important in the games. And the question is, what do we do in international law in order to make sure that sanctions are perceived as fair? And interestingly, in the experiment, symbolic sanctioning works. So it's not that you have to have a material sanction um, or reduce the material payoff. Um, symbolic sanctioning works, and that's good news for international law as well, because we work a lot with symbolic sanctioning. Then the other issue, which is very important and certainly not new, is reciprocity. And some people have said reciprocity is really the principle on which any community is built. But there are different forms of reciprocity. We have this sort of weak reciprocity. So what you do to me, I do to you, right? The do des. And that is something which would be captured by rational choice. Um, but there's also a sort of what we find in the experiments, a strong reciprocity, which is more based on balance. It assumes an act of matching and comparison, and it's related to, to equality and fairness concerns. And people exhibit this kind of fairness norms and fairness, valuing fairness and equality. Most people are conditional cooperators. Okay? I cooperate if you do. If I see that nobody cooperates, I stop cooperating as well. Then I have some people who never cooperate. And I have some people who always cooperate. So they're always altruistic. Um, for knowing what works, we need to know what's in the middle, and we need to know what drives those conditional cooperators. Funnily, the ex very exact um, categorization of how states play in climate change treaties in Kyoto, I found you find it in public good, um, so you, you find it in, climate in international law literature on climate change, that very same thing. Um, and you find it also in, in commons constellations, so in the literature on, on, on commons as well. Morality and framing, as I said, plays a role. Frames can influence the beliefs, and beliefs in turn influence the motivation and thereby the behavior. Um, situations framed as a public good game, for example, have find, you find much more cooperation than those games which are framed as a business transaction. Right? And if you think about yourself, it's the same thing. Like you, you act differently whether you are negotiating with a business partner or whether you are interacting with your family or if you feel that you're contributing to the local football club or something like that. Okay? So, so it depends on in what kind of frame we put the, the, the relevant actors. And then, as I said before, shaming and guilt plays a big role. So shaming people on saying, well, you have not cooperated. And making this public is a symbolic way of sanctioning, and people react to it very strongly. And 
<coughs> guilt, of course, feeling guilty, which is kind of an internalized sanction, right? It's not an external sanction, but I, I feel, if I feel guilty, I, I sanction myself, so to speak. Um, that is also found quite a bit. Um, now, again, international law, I'm going to come to that, works quite a bit, especially in, 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 in environmental treaties. Legitimacy um, plays, a norm, plays a role for compliance. What I found interesting is that they have played experiments where the pedigree of the norm, and I call it legitimacy, but um, you can call it differently. But, so to be more precise, the pedi pedigree of the norm plays a role for compliance. So if you have an externally imposed norm, so the experimenter imposes the norm on which you have to behave, you need strong sanctions so that people do comply. If if the norm is internally decided, so democratically decided, you have consent to the norm, a weak sanction is enough so that people uphold cooperation. Now, where are we in international law? Clearly, we have, uh, we have only weak sanctions, so, and we usually decide norms internally, right, via consensus. So I'm going to come back to that. So, the upshot is we find more cooperation than, than is expected by the rational choice, um, and that is observed due to several factors which play a role in those games. Okay? Now, you would say, and I guess you will say and think to yourself already, hmm, that's all very nice, but now here we are, to we are talking about states, right? We are not talking about individuals. So how you can just transpose it like this? So let me give you some, you're right, I mean, we're talking about psychology, so we are talking about individuals, um, and we can't put states in the lab, obviously. Um, now, the question is whether we can apply this research tell Cal to corporate actors such as states. Let me say that those people applying it to firms have no qualms. They don't even argue about it. They just do it. But I feel we still need to argue a bit more if we apply it to states, okay? What is the difference with rational choice? Because you could say, well, rational choice is a behavioral assumption, um, why can we apply? Nobody discusses whether we can apply that to state, right? We just do it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, let, let's put it this way. Um, rational choice is, and they explicitly say so, it's just an assumption. We don't know whether states behave that way. We just assume it. And that is Chicago School Milton Friedman, if the prediction is right, that, val that validates our assumptions, okay? The problem is that we know that the predictions were often wrong. So, still, um, rational choice is a normative assumption, but psychology is descriptive. Now, if you look at international lawyers, and I find this always funny, and I could now ask you, are states rational? Who thinks states are rational, acting rationally? Okay. Who thinks states are not acting rationally? This is interesting. Um, when you think they are not acting rationally, how do they act? Um, they are a sum of individual decisions that have a rational part and an irrational part, but because it's a, a cumulative uh, set of decisions that is summed together, what is expressed at the end might not be what is rational for the state uh, if you assume a certain uh, a certain distribution of preferences it might not with you there's too many agency problems between who takes the decisions and the interests of the state to say that what what comes out 
So, so would you would you say that the behavior of states is totally unpredictable? If you can understand how the sum of the individual decisions is taking place, and you can understand what the different deciders, and you can create an assumption approximately of what they want, but that does not mean it will coincide with the preferences of the state as a whole. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it merits a lot of discussion, as you can see. Um, the thing is, what I find interesting, when I ask lawyers who work doctrinally or conceptually whether states are rational, um, most of them would say no, as you do, but in the very next sentence they say something on the law, because, I mean, you know, law relies on behavior, on, of, on, on guiding behavior, so there must be some kind of systematic systematic guidance of behavior, otherwise law doesn't make sense, right? So it's very hard to say what exactly is the behavioral assumption. Pro probably implicitly, most international lawyers assume that states act rationally. And, and I would say they probably mostly do, it's just the picture is totally incomplete we have. Rational choice leaves out many facets. But I would still start with this kind of rational choice. So I would never say behavior of states is totally unpredictable. It's probably not, right? But you are right. It depends on what kind of actors we look at. And you can have a crazy leader, whereas everybody else knows exactly what they want, but he has the power, whatever, right? Still difficult, but the important thing here to me is that when we talk about international law and when you go through your own work and how you argue, have a look at what is your implicit behavioral assumption because you most probably have one when you argue. And it doesn't matter whether we talk about the International Criminal Court, the sense and nonsense of the International Criminal Court and what does, I mean, it's, it's meant to do something, right? So we, we expect people to react to this law, including to international law. And try to be more explicit about what you mean. In any case, what we have now is that international lawyers are usually totally disconnected from behavioral insights on how people really behave. Um, also, um, that's another argument why I think we can use this research um, it's not the unitary state actor. I mean, if we talk about the state does that, it's a total simplification and we do know this, which is fine because we reduce complexity. But if you want to dig deeper, we have to unbundle the state. Um, we can still attribute individuals if it's head of state and even if the head of state is in a loss aversion or that makes cognitive bias, we, can, we attribute it to the state, which is perfectly fine and we can do this under international law. But we also have ever more non-state actors, of course. Or as Slaughter calls it, we are living in the legal world. So we have to look at the bits and pieces if we want to understand how international law works. And that is even more so for global public good problems, right? It's a multi-actor, multi-level problem which we need to solve. Um, behavioral political economy is gaining ground. And I guess especially, I mean, not only for all these populist issues which are happening in the moment, um, but also for environmental law, it probably makes sense to have a thorough behavioral economic political economy analysis of what's going on internally 
Um, just look now at the United States um, and the Paris Agreement and the climate change issues. You don't understand the action of the United States if you don't open up the black box, right? And it's probably wrong to assume that everybody acting in this black box is acting rationally. They're probably not. Or there's probably bounded rationality as well. So I think there's no reason ex ante to exclude behavioral insights if we know that rational choice is deficient on the individual basis. Okay? So I tried to get a more complete picture here. Um, let me go to international law. Um, as I said before, climate change law already incorporates many of the elements which are found to foster cooperation in the lab. The Paris Agreement has been called weak on substance, strong on participation by Richard Falk. Now, rational choice would expect it to be cheap talk and not very effective. Scott Barrett, I think, whom I, whose work I admire a lot, um, but he is not very optimistic about um, the Paris Agreement changing anything. He's a ra rational choicer. Okay? Um, has written this, one of the most prominent books on international cooperation and climate change, Why Cooperate? Um, the question is, what does behavioral economics tell us on that? So maybe quickly to those of you who are not environmental lawyers, so I, I focus on Kyoto because Paris still has to be elaborated. Um, so just some few words on Paris. But um, on the, in the compliance regime in Kyoto, you have, of course, the, the, um, the framework convention, you have the Kyoto Protocol, and then the Marrakesh Accords basically working on the compliance mechanisms under Kyoto. Um, and they combine facilitative and enforcement-oriented features by creating a compliance committee um, consisting of the facilitative and an enforcement branch. What's the main issue here? It's monitoring, reporting, review processes, and verification. Um, the facilitative branch um, gives advice, financial and technical assistance, and does capacity building. And the compliance branch, which is for the developed countries, the parties are prevented from using the flexibility mechanisms under the, um, of the Kyoto, the flexibility of the Kyoto mechanisms unless they are compliant um, with these mechanism-specific requirements and more general requirements as well. So you immediately find something which we have discussed before. I'm going to come to that. So if you look at the sanctions, Kyoto, the, the fairness of sanctions, they were pretty, um, you know, elaborate on that. Um, they contain several safeguards. The procedure and mechanisms on compliance um, have several safeguards to ensure due process and um, thus render the sanctions uh, viewed as fair. Okay? Um, you also have independent... Uh, the independent export body review. So again here you want to depoliticize at least part of the problem um, in order to really guard the fairness of the procedure. Then they sanction of course via ostracizing and club good formation, right? Shutting people out of the flexibility mechanism basically means you can't use the markets um, um, for, the, for, for, for red for example, right? And they have a lot of symbolic sanctioning because they publicize the non-compliance. Okay? So that's this public shaming. This is what they play on. Um, then you have morality and framing. Now, basically, all climate change treaties frame the situation as a collective action problem. So Paris, in the preamble, for example, says, acknowledging that climate change is a common concern of human rights, of humankind. And of course, they, they in, all, in all the... At different steps of the preamble, they, they basically go to that concern. Um, 
Kyoto and the, the, the compliance mechanisms rely much on shaming, the shaming mechanisms. So I said that the monitoring and the public shaming, and of course that works only if you set a norm of morality, right? Um, and because the law gives you the information about um, what is the norm, how you have to behave, and what is good and what is bad. Um, now, what they also have, of course, is including the equality concerns, right? And, and although um, the common but differentiated um, um, uh, responsibilities are not, I mean, there are people criticizing it, but I think that was at the forefront. And, the, and also Paris says very clearly that some countries can do it, some cannot. And already with all the capacity building, it does make a difference. Um, the reciprocity issues, the weak reciprocity, of course, you have it everywhere in international law, um, but you also have strong reciprocity. So international law relies on finding out the motivation of states, right? So it does matter what I think, why the other state acted that way, um, the intention of the other state, which, which is not complying. So the technical capacity versus bad face issue. And you have different consequences in Kyoto as well. Um, then what they all try to do is try to create trust in order to get the conditional cooperators on board or not have them leave uh, via the monitoring mechanisms in order to uphold the cooperation, right? So the creating those kind of trust mechanisms are very important in those treaties. Um, the legitimacy or the pedigree of the norm, as I said, plays a role for compliance. Now, Thomas Frank said, you have this kind of legitimacy among, legitimacy among nations where he basically based his arguments on consent and the way of this, how, how the way the consent came about. And you might have seen that in collective action problems, especially climate change, pub, public good issues, um, Nico Krisch as well as Andrew Guzman have recently argued against consent, actually this against consent is the title of Andrew's article. Um, and I would caution that due to the insights we have. As I said before, um, you know, Paris is weak, probably weak on substance, uh, weaker maybe depending on what they do in the follow-up on the compliance, but since it's, uh, it's, it's nationally determined contributions, there's no substantive, so we just have the non-obligations, right? But still, that was the only way how to get all those states on board and to get their consent of the most important players. Um, and you need them. Um, so I would argue that behavioral economics would rather tell you to include more states at the price of making the agreement more shallow, although only to the point where the trust is upheld in order for reciprocity to play. Because otherwise, really, the agreement is not worth the paper written on, right? But, but um, the Paris Agreement, to some degree, does it because it is strong on those monitoring mechanisms, even though on reporting mechanisms um, um, or, or the, those kind of obligations and not the national determined contribution because this is non-legally binding, but still. So what are the norm normative implications here? I think the Kyoto Agreement and the Paris Agreement already take into account, probably inadvertently, insights from psychology. When the compliance mechanisms of the Paris Agreement are negotiated, I think they must incorporate um, the creation of trust mechanisms, so be very strong on monitoring issues. 
Um, they need somehow to use the outcasting mechanisms. That's actually a rational choice as well, um, which would ask for that. And they should, and they already have those fairness concerns incorporated, right? But we need to continue to stress that. The non-obligations, um, in my view, like the right choices would say, the non-obligations, so the, the nationally determined contributions in the Paris Agreement, they're totally cheap talk. We can chunk this agreement immediately, right? There's nothing really where it will make any difference. I would say not so quickly, right? <laughs> because um, I think it's more than so-called cheap talk, uh, what they've done in the Paris Agreement. Um, but surely we have to be very careful that it doesn't risk to alienate the conditional cooperators. So there must be some sort of trust mechanisms that at least countries will adhere to their nationally determined contributions. And the way to do this is, of course, hopefully it works, symbolic sanctioning, monitoring, publicizing, helping NGOs and bringing those cases and making it public, right? So those are the mechanisms we might want to use, at least under behavioral insights. Okay, let me stop here. Um, every social, social science analysis needs a behavioral theory. I think rational choice has shown to neglect important elements of behavior. I think understanding international law in those constellations, not only there, but also in, especially in those constellations, um, so collective action, um, should be based on a realistic behavioral assumptions. This is like, you know, you want to know why you have to wash your hands. 300 years ago, we didn't know why we had, we washed our hands, but we didn't know why. And now we wash it because we know since Virchow and Semmelweis, we know we have to wash them in order to get rid of the bacteria and the viruses. Right? And that's the same thing I'm trying to sell to you here. Uh, when we talk about international law and try to understand international law and try to, to, to understand why we have certain mechanisms, um, it might make sense to see on what kind of behavioral assumptions those are grounded because that gives us much more insight um, on, on, on how to design international law as well. So this talk really is a first attempt to fix the research gap or the paper, but clearly there's much more research needed on the specific specificities of international law and I hope with maybe um, the Humboldt professorship gives me the possibility to conduct um, uh, experiments um, which would go more to the intricacies of international law because there's a vast research area which we really haven't yet grappled with. Let me say that international organization which is an A journal in international relations um, just the April issue just um, has a whole special issue on psychology and international relations. Not international law, international relations, okay? So there's, something is growing here. So I just wanted to alert you to that. Thank you so much, and I'm looking very much forward to your questions.